Welcome to the Find These Times, a podcast dedicated to the easy task of tackling the 21st century. It is a project born out of my conviction that doing so requires an interdisciplinary and intersectional approach to understanding our complex world. I'm your host, Jerea Yub, and in these episodes, I bring you conversations at the intersection of politics, history, philosophy, culture, science, and all the fun stuff in between. The following episode was first published for monthly Patreon supporters. To become a monthly Patreon supporter, please head out to patreon.com slash times or check the website for other methods. You can become a supporter for as little as $1 a month. And if you cannot donate, you can still support this project by sharing with your friends and family and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The music of this podcast is by Tarabit. Here's the episode. Hey everyone, so this is a conversation with Promise Lee. He is a US-based member of the Lausanne Collective, the Democratic Socialist of America, and he does solidarity work with Hong Kong and China's dissident movements. The topics that we discussed are so wide-ranging that I'm actually struggling to summarize it. We spoke about Hong Kong, obviously, and being born and growing up in Hong Kong in the shadow of the Tiananmen Square massacre and after the UK-China handover and what does, how that influences his own left-wing politics. We discussed the difficulties of navigating online discourses on Hong Kong, Lebanon, Syria, Israel-Palestine, and so many other contexts. We discussed left-wing authoritarianism, i.e. tankies, and how they whitewash regimes such as China's or Syria's or other regimes around the world, as long as those regimes call themselves anti-imperialist. We discussed how governments and politicians learn from one another, including uh, quote-unquote anti-imperialist governments and parties, how, for example, Hezbollah and the Syrian regime has learned from the American government, how the Chinese government has learned from the American government and vice versa, and so on and so forth. Uh, I asked him to react, or I asked him what were his initial thoughts when he first learned about the concentration camps in Xinjiang. And we ended up having a very deep conversation on such things as like the multiplicity of places, uh, how he has a specific anger towards uh, people and governments and states who were oppressed in the past and who now oppress others, uh, namely Israel and China, in the examples that we give. He even mentions the importance of why he identifies as a Hong Konger Chinese and how bo- having both identities matters. And I gave myself as a sort of a response the complicated identities of uh, those who would identify as Jewish and Arab at the same time, either historically or today. Uh, we even discussed the example of Hindutva and Indian Muslims. We then got into like a more broader anti-nationalism talk and how that intersects in the global south. We discussed the potential for Black Lives Matter to be uh, globalized, either in Hong Kong or in Lebanon or both. Uh, and so many other things that I'm, I'm honestly barely scratching the surface. This was, as I said, a very pretty wide-ranging conversation. So I'll shut up for now and I'll let you enjoy this conversation. Uh, I would be very curious to hear your thoughts, as always, so please reach out either on Patreon or by email, which you can find on the website. Thanks a lot. My name is Promise Lee. Uh, I'm a member of Lausanne Collective, um, Democratic Socialist America, among other groups based in the U.S., but um, mainly kind of doing international solidarity work now for, um, um, with Hong Kong and, and, and China. The dissident movements there um yeah well i mean before getting into some of the you know many pieces that you've written and you know uh, 
we have some links, you know, with Lausanne. I've written there once, um, and I've interviewed, I think, two. I think you're my third Lausanneer <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> I've interviewed Sharon and, and JP. But I think a good place to start, you know, as, as good as any, really, is if you can sort of uh, talk a bit about your own political trajectory. Um, you know, how have you come to hold the beliefs that you do? Uh, yeah, I feel like that's just a good place to start this conversation. Yeah, sure. Um... Yeah, I mean, my first, uh, you know, I was born and raised in Hong Kong and my first kind of political awakening, I guess, so to speak, was just, yeah, I think growing up just under under the kind of shadow of the Tiananmen massacre in Hong Kong, right? And, and it's actually, yeah, I was talking with some other Hong Kongers about this, but it's actually, you know, I think that legacy is weird, right? Because it, it shaped so much of the city's identity and legacy. And I was really one of the first you know, I was like the first generation to kind of grow up in, um, after the handover. Um, and, and yeah, it's a weird, um, it's a, it's a weird place where it's a weird situation where I think uh, I wrote about this in various pieces, right. Where I think the legacy of British colonialism gets very kind of delinked or forgotten or, or just kind of, um, it's reworked in these kind of strange ways, especially for, for, a, for a new generation that's grown up under, a very specific, uh, a very visceral um, kind of kind of state authority, right, and sovereignty under the Chinese government that that no one has had the chance to kind of um, experience really before the generation, right. So I think there's a lot of negotiating and um, interesting political attitudes. But for me, yeah, I think it was it was this very simple belief in you know people's democratic rights uh, should be respected and censorship is bad or something, right. It's kind of a pretty normal. Uh, kind of liberal sentiment right and um i was i was on the streets when i think the chinese government was ch- starting to change the textbooks this is like the moral national educational curriculum it was like 2012 or something i was like in middle school or early high school or something and by that point i, I moved to the u.s but I, I still have a lot of links and family back in hong kong so there's that and then but yeah i think really getting radicalized just um being in the u.s and meeting marxists and my first political organization was this uh, small socialist group in the U.S. called Solidarity, and and yeah, it's interesting because I feel like uh, I think after 2015 or so, right, people mainly get radicalized through Bernie or through other things or through you know the rise of ethnic studies departments in, in the U.S. But and I, I feel like the last of a kind of you know, tradition of folks who, who were radicalized through these very small kind of specific socialist traditions. Um, and yeah, so like some of my early mentors were, I guess it's so-called ex-Trotskists or, or third camp independent socialists and, and the like. And it's interesting having to kind of figure all that out in, in that milieu, my own politics for myself. And they've been very helpful, but at the same time, I think a lot of kind of self-reflection to do and especially getting more involved with Asian American movements. And, and um, I did kind of tenant organizing in Chinatown in Los Angeles for a couple of years. And, and so it was interesting to kind of bring all that, this, this very specific uh, tradition, which is often very white, right, but very, very self-conscious of, 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 you know, its attitudes towards what it means to build a mass movement, international politics, anti-imperialism, into conversation with, uh, yeah, being an organizer in Asian American communities and getting in touch with that. And then now, obviously, doing international work, it um, definitely feels like different contexts colliding. And I think with Lausanne, um, yeah, I think we um, it's definitely holding together a lot of kind of left and cop leftist contexts in my brain and trying to piece everything together and, and trying to find uh yeah liberatory solutions um and 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 here i am still 
figuring things out. So that's, that's figuring a nutshell. Things out. Yeah, yeah. Um, I found, I mean, the very first episode of this podcast was with uh, JP from Lausanne, and I, it was a very deliberate decision. Uh, I mean, the, the the podcast overall is largely Middle East oriented. There are some stuff that are non-Middle East, obviously, but it was a very, very conscious decision to have something that has, quote unquote, nothing to do with the Middle East as a first episode. Um, and I mean, for those who have listened to it, it's it's it, and we ended up actually having quite a lot of things in common and something that I've then explored even more with Sharon, uh, that's episode 46 uh, for those listening, on the, especially the, the context of being radicalized uh, through specific events or because of, you know, some people, it would be in the aftermath of Tiananmen Square, uh, as you said, or it could be, you know, uh, more or less in the past decade, uh, the events of the past decade, whether obviously in the, in the Middle East, it's the Arab Spring and or what's called the Arab Spring and everything that came after it. Or, you know, as you mentioned in Hong Kong, the 2012 stuff and then the Umbrella Movement and then obviously 2019. And as it happens, the Lebanon protest happened around the same time as the Hong Kong one, a couple of months or so after it started in Hong Kong. And we saw increasingly anyway, many of these parallels being made online, usually surface level, usually like actually you, you feel the people making those comparisons. I mean, like myself are actually just exploring. They don't really know where this is going to lead really but i've always find that i mean i've been finding that uh very interesting hence why i've been still following laosan and and that work but for those who don't even know what laosan is can you give some kind of just like you know genesis or how it started and what is it about sure um yeah i just want to be clear i think you know we're, we're, we're pretty decentralized horizontal collective so so definitely there's uh there's a range of kind of opinions and perspectives, and, and I, 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 I try we try not to speak too much on behalf of, of, of the collective too much, but um, but yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll kind of approach uh, um, my, my role in Laosan or what I think Laosan is from my own perspective, just to name that. Um, but yeah, we, we started in 2019 um, when the uprisings in Hong Kong were kind of really bubbling up, and um, and yeah, we were a bunch of kind of Hong Kong and Chinese diaspora leftists um, who are, you know, kind of scattered internationally from the UK to the US or Canada, um, who are noticing, you know, we all come from different backgrounds, you know, some are media folks, um, some are organizers, um, but, you know, everyone's kind of broadly, everyone would broadly identify in, in, in the kind of far left, I would say. And, um, and yeah, and just to, and, and really realizing, you know, there's kind of a, um, a, a dearth in, in, in kind of adequate views to actually look at um, the Hong Kong situation in its own right that doesn't kind of tailor uh, or the yeah it doesn't kind of um, 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 get subsumed under the kind of state rhetoric and the programs right of, of the U.S. Of, of China and of other kind of programs and you know for us it's it's this kind of interest in you know one letting Hong Kongers or the diversity of Hong Kong voices speak um, you know who are, that are often you know many of which are often alighted within the movement itself right internally. Um, and trying to have these perspectives as kind of a media outlet. So yeah, a couple of us kind of found each other, some online and some were like, you know, friends, people brought in. And eventually, you know, we wanted to do a reading list and disseminate it and then became like, you know, we wanted to do, end up doing a publication. And then eventually now we're, I guess, something of a, a, a ambiguous mix between publication and, and organization or something like that. And yeah, trying to kind of intervene more now and, and you know, show up as, as uh, you know, diaspora leftists um, or, you know, folks who have connection to Hong Kong and China 
um, and start to make these interventions through our various contacts and, and various coalitional spaces and, and you know, try to make intervention both through discourse, but also um, through organizing um, kind of behind the scenes and, and making these connections, just like the ones you're talking about, right? With other kind of mass movements um, that have been bubbling from Puerto Rico to Lebanon and um, whatever's going on and try to stimulate more of these kind of grassroots internationalist solidarity relationships rather than, um, yeah, siding with any state power. Yeah, I've, I can think of some um, parallels anyway with, with a few of my friends trying to do the same in Lebanon. It, I wouldn't say it's managed to, with the exception of maybe Megaphone News, which is a pretty good one. It's largely in Arabic, megaphone.news for those listening. Um, I, the, the others haven't really managed to get that kind of, of uh, wide-ranging um, topics that I see Laosan getting into. There are many, don't get me wrong. Uh, they're just small scages because they're still very new. The public source is another good one, actually, not just Megaphone. But anyway, um, one thing that I feel has... Um, brought me closer to the, you know, for lack of a better word, like Hong Kong activism world, is this uh, tension or the struggle or this difficulty at navigating uh, largely online um, discourses, right? Um, you even list them. So I'm just going to quote you, <laughs> you sorry, throw it back at you. Um, Laosan came together partly in response to an ecosystem of mistranslation. In the summer of 2019, Hong Kong became an overdetermined site most so uh, more so than ever before, and here's where you list them, a bargaining chip for empires, an intellectual exercise for academics and pundits, a postmodern spectacle for subcultural enthusiasts, and another instance in the United States campaign for subversion against its new rival or in China's plan to extend its global ambitions. I mean, I can change the words around and use it on Syria, I can use it on Lebanon, I can there are obviously specifics, you know, to every context, it's not the same. Uh, China's plan is not that big in Lebanon, it's not that big of a priority, for example. In Syria, I would speak more about Russia, for example, or Iran, for that matter, or Turkey. <laughs> I can just go on and on. Um, but this, this, can you talk a bit about um, uh, this difficulty of navigating these multiple discourses and having to always essentially the way I picture it is like I always have to be armed with a dozen different answers at any given time just depending on you know the the perspective of the person coming at me uh, and in order to even get to the content in order to even get to talking right. about the the uprising in Lebanon for example even before getting there I need to swift through all of this noise, debunk a lot of things, and then maybe if we have enough time, we get into the actual topic of discussion. Right. Yeah, I mean, actually, yeah, I was just talking with uh, some organizer friends about this, right? And I actually think it's very simple. And um, I think this is actually where, uh, you know, experience doing local organizing and community organizing and, and left communities just organically I think, you know, I think obviously there are details and there, there are all these specificities about these, these places and stuff we, we all need to learn about. Um, but at the end of the day, I think in terms of our political values and principles, right? Um, I think for me that something that's very important, right? That I got from growing up in Hong Kong is this value of, kind of democracy, right? Just the right of people to be able to um, determine kind of their own future and their material conditions, right? And, and, and so and such a big word in all, all of this is self-determination, right? And so much of democracy, self-determination, and that, that's such an immediate and tangible um, principle that's guided me in every single milieu I've been. And I, I actually don't think it's that much of a complicated matter, right? It's like this 
empowering each other, right, in our own kind of context, right, to fight for, um, you know, fight for, like, people's right to determine their own material conditions collectively, right, and democratically with, without coercion. And most importantly, without, you know, throwing other mass movements or other communities under the bus, right, for your own. And I think that's a very, honestly, it's a very simple, I mean, it's, it's a very human, um, not even, it's not even, doesn't feel that political, right? And I think, I think obviously we can talk more about like, you know, how do you imagine a mass movement? What is your relationship to you know, critical support for certain state powers and all these things? But at the end of the day, I think it's like, um, you know, I think this informs a perspective, you know, towards uh, movements in Venezuela and Hong Kong, Syria, et cetera, right? It's like the fact that um, there's state repression, there are authoritarian powers and yeah, they all have, you know, you can complicated relationship with capital and with their regimes of governance and all these things. But, uh, and obviously there's lots of room for co-optation from different imperial powers, right? But at the same time, it's like at the very core of it, right? Is this just reminding people that, you know, like what would you do as a local organizer in your community, right? Is that there will always be, always be contradictions and there are always people figuring things out. And the answer obviously is always, um, you know, trying and aiming towards these kind of cross milieu, cross kind of coalitional efforts to build each other's um, um, capacity for change, right? As working class, as, as grassroots people on the ground. And, and to me, the international work is really just imagining that, right? In, in a much kind of broader framework, right? But the, the principle remains the same, right? It's like Hong Kongers have the right to determine their own future, just as folks in, in Lebanon and, and, and Syria and et cetera and stuff in the face of um, 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 these different kind of nexuses of violence, right? And I think, yeah, one thing, and it's gonna be complicated, right? In terms of, I think th this is even more pronounced, right? In the Lebanon context with all these, with various kind of ethnic groups and it's like, what does self-determination mean for these groups? And, and what does it mean to imagine that kind of together collectively in a way that kind of works for everyone? I think, yeah, that's, that's, that is the real question, right? And, and, and the fact that uh, we, we don't even have space to really, um, you know, think too deeply about, about you know, the nuances of self-determination, which is really kind of my main project. I think my main political question, right? Not, not this kind of, you know, defending state violence stuff that, that we, we have to kind of unfortunately get through in the left, right? But yeah, imagine, you know, what the self-determination look like, right? Um, um, in the forms of, uh, you know, do we have kind of federated kind of structures of struggles together? I feel like, you know, I think those are the real questions that will actually um, help us strike at the weak points of capital and of these connected um, networks of state violence, right? That we should be asking. But, uh, and yeah, I think I think the the kind of simple truth behind, um, that's the precondition for all these kind of musings or, or these organizing, um, uh, real organizing questions is, is a simple, fact that, yeah, we should respect communities' capacity for self-determination, for democratic self-determination. Um, and that, yes, like, you know, these struggles are always be co-opted and we do our best to, to fight and resist against folks who, who try to co-opt these struggles, like the, the various actors that I named, right, um, in, in that list. Um, and yeah, that to me is a very simple, very simple political point. The, the, the paragraph I quoted is from uh, Hayes publication. You wrote an article for them uh, recently, I think, called Translating Self-Determination. Uh, Hong Kong's Water Revolution. Oh, I think that's the general title. Hong Kong's Water Revolution in Contemporary Art and Culture. Um, so to also be, I mean, I, I will uh, redirect listeners to like episode one and episode 46, I think, as I said, but I mean, assuming many won't, uh, because that's a lot, a big, a lot of homework. Um, can you sort of talk um, about the water revolution? Like what is sort of the, the, the context, um, what, what triggered the uprising in 2019, uh, even if just briefly so that, you know, 
people can actually follow us? Sure. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, right. The larger context is, uh, you know, there was a handover in 1997 and, and there was a kind of change in sovereignty from, from the British government, Chinese government. And, and there's been kind of a, a, a slow but increasing uh, kind of uh, restraining of civil liberties. Right. I mean, obviously, you know, it's not like there's a lot of civil liberties in, 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 in the colonial days. Right. But there's a kind of new concentration of, of, of what we see as uh, um, um, the narrowing of, of, of democratic freedoms. And it really accumulated right throughout since 1997 and, and various kind of uprisings. But the 2019 one was really, I think, the, the kind of biggest one yet, right? The biggest social movement Hong Kong has seen so far. In reaction to this extradition bill, right? Where, um, you know, basically, I mean, it's it's so wild now. It feels like the details of that feel, feel, feel almost quite meaningless because of how how expansive the struggles became, right? But it became response to this kind of murder case in Taiwan where, where um, um, you know, I think Beijing government wanted some sort of uh, mechanism to, to kind of expedite, um, um, you know, various sorts of criminals um, towards its own kind of internal court system. And then activists feared, activists and legal scholars all agreed that there are significant kind of um, um, problems, right? With this new extradition bill that would actually go and encompass also um, um, you know, political, um, you know, what they deem as political criminals in, in a much more kind of undemocratic and expansive um, way. And, and yeah, I think, um, you know, I just want to note, you know, there's a lot of kind of mass movement uh, mobilizations that start from student groups and a lot of local community groups and concern groups that really built up the momentum um, in 2019 before the summer, right? That set the stage for, you know, millions of people to kind of pour out in the street by, um, by, by the early summer, right? And, and so that became the genesis of that struggle and, and it kind of continued on and, and, and much more militant forms, especially as, uh, as, as it feels like the room for change um, in the electoral kind of the public sphere feels like it's limiting. And, um, and yeah, I guess, I guess just to jump forward, you know, now that we're almost two years away, you know, the movement has, you know, I would say been effectively crushed at least for time being, right? And, and if we're kind of now at a, um, yeah, at, a, at, a, at the deepest, you know, probably darkest era of repression that the city have seen. Um, and yeah, I think folks are looking for answers and, and, and how we can continue the struggle. And also to make sense of the fact of how the struggle has completely transformed Hong Kong identity and consciousness, right? For the, those of us in Hong Kong, also in the diaspora, um, not even just a political level, but a cultural level. So that's, that's where we are now. You're right. I mean, so you, you touched upon it. You touch upon this um, a bit even now, but like the fact that it's been effectively crushed. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it that definitely seems to be the case. As also, also from from you know my, my standpoint, um, can you sort of you know with as much detail as you want really, and you feel comfortable, just kind of explain uh, how the reaction or what what the reaction has been from from the side of of the state really. Yeah, so um, yeah, so there's a national security laws, right? Um, that were passed uh, last July, July 2020. And, and it's an significant expansion, a present expansion of, of uh, and it's, 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 it's absolutely unaccountable state power, right? And, and they reserve a lot of what rights to deem, you know, who, what activities, political activities count as succession or, or national subversion or these kind of, um, you know, very high flute and crimes. And, and yeah, there's, um, there's no more independent judiciary. Um, there are a lot of closed courts, uh, closed trials now. So it, it's effectively much more kind of clearly authoritarian in many ways than, than, than we've ever seen before in the city. 
Um, and yeah, I think the, 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 the state has effectively criminalized or jailed almost all the prominent, prominent opposition figures that you can think of. Um, um, they started off with, so, so, so the pan-democratic camp um, built up this kind of unofficial primary to kind of field, you know, to kind of consolidate the, the opposition around certain candidates uh, and, and a kind of a, uh, a bottom-up democratic way in order to, to kind of fight for a better chance in, 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 a, in a kind of legislative council election in 2019. That's already stacked against, against the opposition anyways, right? But, you know, that ended up became another instance of subversion, you know, which, which the government now kind of freely interprets. Um, and there are articles now coming out on, on how, you know, how the, the extent of, of how uncountable the set of uh, laws, because, you know, there's a bunch of leftists online who are trying to say like, oh, you know, all the... You know, Western governments also have the same 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 type of legislation, but it's like no, actually, um, this this is a significant expansion of of, of unaccountable power that that and a scale that you don't even see and see in certain kind of Western traditional imperial powers. So there's that, and yeah, so most of the opposition's been effectively kind of jailed, and um, you know, I think when the when the NSL first began, you know, folks were getting. Um, getting arrested for just having stickers or slogans or something like that. And, um, you know, my, my kind of the most outrageous one was someone who had a sticker that says conscience in, in, in Chinese. And that was apparently evidence of some sort of, I don't know, political subversion. And, and yeah, so it, it, it goes, it's very unaccountable. And, and there's, there's, I think they're trying to be you don't exactly know how long the sentences are going to be right now. You know, it's, it seems light for a couple of people, but it's like, you don't, you also don't exactly understand, um, you know, technically the, the charges that they're, they're pinning on these people, right. Can carry kind of life sentences. Right. And that's kind of up to them to determine. And so that's, yeah. So that's, that's kind of the extent. And I think folks are feeling very scared to, to kind of organize at all. Right. Um, and, and, and definitely people are thinking of, you know, what it means to even, do political activism in, in such a in such a climate and and you know there's a lot there's been a lot of uh a whole wave of refugees political refugees and exiles and and all that and yeah a lot of kind of new paradigms to deal with and i think that's where we are now a lot of people are scared to kind of definitely come out to streets and everyone's very vigilant hyper vigilant about mm -hmm. even saying stuff online let alone organizing and um and that's precisely the the climate that beijing wants to promote right um and yeah mm. yeah the, the fact that you don't actually know how much or like what kind of consequences consequences you might get is is as smart as it gets from the standpoint of like an authoritarian government really um because you can't even calculate the risks you can't even uh, say well maybe this protest is actually worth uh, one week in jail because you don't actually know if it's one week in jail you know etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, right. yeah I mean we, we have seen this in, in the Middle East as well um, I, I I kind of I wanted to link this to another point that you made in another interview I was listening to of like how the essentially governments always learn from one another and this is something that many people on the left don't seem to fully understand uh when they when they sort of adopt this uh what have been you know been calling uh you know the tankies and the campism and all of that stuff and even if they're not pro chinese government let's say they would always have some kind of um you know some people have called this like a soft tankism in some ways like a binary way of thinking regardless um 
but the governments don't spend too much time thinking about those binaries. They actually just learn from where they want to learn. Like the, the best example I always give is the war on terror after 9-11, obviously, especially, I mean, it happened before, but especially since 9-11, a lot of the governments, even those that call themselves anti-imperialist or anti-American or whatever, the Chinese one among them, have been just adopting that same war on terror rhetoric. And this extends to even militias, like in, in Lebanon, Hezbollah has had that own war on terror rhetoric. Um, Iran has it, uh, the Syrian regime has it, uh, Turkey has it, Egypt has it. And those are governments that don't even like one another necessarily, like the Egyptian and the Syrian or the Syrian and the Turkish or whatever, but they still find these same methods of repression because, I mean, why wouldn't they from their quote-unquote perspective? If they want to repress, they are going to find the most innovative way of doing so. And yet on the other side, or those of us who are opposed to them, seem we were having a bit more difficulty I, I, I mean I, from my standpoint also learning from one another uh, because we spend way too much time trying to first determine whether the people that are resisting oppression are ideologically pure enough for our own politics or not does that make sense mm-hmm. yeah yeah no definitely a lot to say about these the, the, the collusion between governments right and yeah, I think Islamophobia is such an important lynch point, actually, for, for a lot of these methods. Actually, yeah, I think Islamophobia, especially as it relates or, or alongside anti-Blackness, right, has, been, uh, has, become, has become, you know, very, very productive, uh, a generative kind of engine for, for world governments, right, um, um, beyond the, your, you know, most traditional Western imperial actors, right, to learn from each other, to keep conducting and building these, these technologies of surveillance, right, and of policing, and of, of state repression, right? It's directly built off of, of yeah, policing black and brown bodies, but especially, right, um, especially Muslims around the world and especially especially black folks around the world. And yeah, I think, um, I mean, the US-China collusion is just so blatant. I actually don't even know how to, I mean, yeah, I've, you know, I think, I, I don't understand, you know, yeah, I think people like to say as, you know, at least, you know, even if China's bad, at least it's like the lesser evil or something, which is really funny and ironic because many of these same people would, not use this argument when it comes to the two-party system in the United States, right, with the Republicans and Democrats, who quite obviously, you know, learn from each other in ways that we, we can't even begin to, to fully list. And yeah, I'm trying to make the argument too, of course, like the, like these 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 modes of, I mean, it's kind of like the two-party system, right, in, in the U.S., right, we think about international capitalism and global capitalism and the relationship between U.S. and China, right, China's built its economic rise, right, that these leftists love to kind of proclaim um, on the backs of the Chinese proletariat, um, on behalf of, of global North consumers and markets, right? The Chinese government has literally exploit, super exploited its own, um, its own um, um, working class, right? For, for Adidas, for US markets and for all these things. So I think that's that, I mean, you know, I, I made a kind of, uh, yeah, I made a tweet just jabbing at the fact that, you know, there's all these leftists saying, you know, Laosan or, a bunch of these other groups are, you know, we're fueling the CIA and, and, and U.S. empire with our rhetoric. And I'm just like, I don't think we're ever powerful enough to uphold the U.S. empire as much as the CCP has, right? In order, and, and, and to the extent of how much they sold, they literally sell out, right? Like sold out their own communities and working class communities to, to these Western empires. And they're still doing so, right? Um, um, to these various kind of economic um, connections uh, and stuff, right? And so... Yeah, Xinjiang is a major example of, of, of all these things kind of coming to head, right? And, and 
Um, you know, Darren Byler is a great resource for this, especially um, his article made in China on preventative policing um, um, in the region. Um, and and it's, it's also highly ironic that I think some of these tankies are now attacking um, um, Darren for, I don't know, his various uh, 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 kind of institutional connections or something like that. Well, in reality, you know, most of his resources are actually looking directly at CCP police records, right, at, at police, at state-run police academies and what type of, um, and really kind of taking the, the, the CCP at their own words, right, and, and he's able to dig up these, like, frankly, incredible resources on how, for example, before the U.S. has even, um, you know, obviously, like you've alluded, right, the U.S. war on terror has obviously given direct inspiration for the Chinese government um, to appropriate. And this is all down on paper, right? It's like, you know, this is all, you know, and this is this is kind of a, a part of Darren's research, right? Is that, you know, David Petrus's counterinsurgency manuals, right? All these things are being actively translated and they're peer reviewed works from state owned, state run police academies in the CCP, right? That are directly trying to adapt this and, and they're written records of this, right? And that they freely admit to. My, my favorite one recently was, was when the CCP tried to say, um, this is on Global Times, so, you know, but, but yeah, so I think this is the Global Times itself saying our, our concentration camps are, are no different from the, de the, the de-radicalization centers in UK and France and, and all these countries. So, so they, it's in their own words, right? That, that, that they literally learn from Western imperialism and Western imperial methods, right? And so, yeah, I think, you know, those are some of the, the, the few, if not many aspects already, right, in which we see these connections. And yeah, obviously there are these kind of inter-imperial inter rivalry and especially with the U.S.-China um, trade war uh, with, the, with this kind of so-called new Cold War tensions. Um, there are obviously going to be these, these, these moments of, of disconnections and rivalry, but at the end of the day, right, um, now, I think the global economy and also global politics are governed by a shared set of principles among these state actors. And, um, you know, obviously we put out another piece where it's, uh, where it's about, um, yeah, the, 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 the kind of American police training the Hong Kong police for, for years um, up to this point. And, and the Chinese government is trying to take in all of these resources from Western imperial powers and then do an about face now, right? By saying, you know, no, we need to, you know, we're an anti-imperial kind of bastion against these empires. Well, in reality, everything up to that point, and even currently throughout the trade war, right, um, we're actively, um, um, the government is actively colluding and, and learning from these powers. And, you know, I've seen some tankies describe, try to what, kind of write this off as like, you know, the, the bargain or the Faustian bargain or something. And I, 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 I fully don't understand how that excuses anything or help help their point at all because that's i'm like yes precisely there is this 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 hideous bargain right that that has completely upheld it upheld the kind of state of global liberal uh, neoliberal order um that that both governments are fully complicit in right you know it doesn't mean that both governments are are kind of bad in the same way or something i think that's the usual charge raised against the kind of um uh the laosan crew so to speak right is that we're, we're flattening um the, the 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 crimes of two empires and to me it's that's it's not about saying which one is worse right it's it's trying to say it's it's the same global system of imperialism um um and you it's not something you can just merely pin on one nation state because that's not how capital works so yeah that's that's the long story short i guess yeah i mean the the faustian bargain made me laugh a bit because i don't think these people know how the story ends <laughs> right right <yeah. laughs> exactly uh, just today, I mean, uh, we're recording this on April 30th, uh, 2021. Um, 
our ex-foreign minister, I mean, Lebanese ex-foreign minister, uh, Jabron Basile, who's the son-in-law of the president. So we have a very, like, Jared Kushner, uh, Trump uh, dynamic happening there. Uh, he was in Moscow, or he still is in Moscow, I don't know. Um, and he appealed to a very Sputnik slash RT uh, narrative. So he called the Lebanese uprising of October 2019, he called it a color revolution. Anyone who mm -hmm. follows like Ukraine, for example, knows uh, how the Russian government, uh, you know, the terminology that they use on these things. Essentially, it's a foreign conspiracy. And he actually said that um, it's a, it's a, it was a paid conspiracy and so on and so forth. Mm. And what's very interesting about him, I always love to quote him. I love to cite the guy. Uh, he's a piece of shit, but he, he is very honest. He's very honest in not giving a shit and just saying whatever is there for, for, the, for, for the picking, you know. Uh, he mm -hmm. can appeal to the war on terror. He can um, say, like, he once, once he said, like, if you don't help us, as in if you, the EU, don't help us, Lebanon, you will have a refugee crisis on your hands. And what he was saying is that, you know, if you don't help us, we will, quote unquote, unleash the Syrians because he knows that that's the only thing that the EU cares about. And, you know, these part my, my point is that these politicians or a lot of them anyway, they are very quickly learning from one another because they sort of will live in the same world. They, they really I can even uh, cite the fact that the, recently the Saudi and the Palestinian ambassador two governments that have never been elected, I should say. The PA hasn't been elected in a decade and a half now. Saudi Arabia, obviously, never. Um, went on Chinese TV and were interviewed by this... Uh, I, don't, I don't really know who she was. Um, also, basically, saying that they've been to Xinjiang and things are fine. And Hong Kong was a disturbance or whatever terms they used, but they didn't, obviously, you know, uh, disregarding it. And those two people are fascinating to have at the same time. You have on the one side the Saudi and the other side the Palestinian. The Palestinian right. would then, of course, say that Israel is occupying Palestinian land and this is outrageous, which obviously it is. And then the right. Saudi wouldn't say anything about it because they're too busy trying to normalize things with Israel. So you have these, these um, same politicians in the same room, potentially if they were in different rooms saying these contradictory things. And yet when it comes to America and China, you can on, one, on the one hand see yeah, Henry Kissinger basically praising the Chinese Communist Party. And on the other yeah. hand, thank you. And vice versa. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and vice versa. Praising Henry yeah. Kissinger. Right. Yeah. And on the other hand, uh, tankies who would call Henry Kissinger a monster, which he is, mm -hmm. uh, ignoring that bit as if it's just a tiny small detail. Or like the, I think it was the one of the Chinese state accounts also on Twitter, actually, literally, there was a police day, International Police Day or something two years ago, and they put like uh, American cops on one side crushing Black Lives Matter or something, and on the other side, them uh, doing whatever they were doing. And so, yeah, just to kind of reinforce your own point that, it, it doesn't surprise me either. It's not something that for me, or at least it's been a few years now since I've adopted a anti-authoritarian first, let's say, politics or prioritizing that kind of politics, uh, that all of those kind of geopolitical noise um, ends up being for what it is, noise. It's it, At the end of the day, they really do appreciate one another. They, they have, they do have this affinity and sometimes they say it pretty overtly. They sound like I'm, you know, it doesn't take much, as you said, they just say these things pretty overtly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and one point about the anti-authoritarian thing, right? It's like, yeah, I think obviously the US, China, all these governments are authoritarian in different ways, right? Um, I think, I think you know, it's, us people think 
people like to say it's a loaded term and things and and but I think one one aspects about the CCP that it's hard to get through right with the Americans especially Western leftists here is that they don't understand I mean obviously you know the US is terrible it's it's one of the you know worst imperial powers ever and 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 destruction and genocide of indigenous people and other folks like absolutely and, and precisely it's those things right that that there are these methods that the CCP kind of take in their own hands right not to say that they've done the exact same stuff but but yeah exactly like going back to your point right it's like they learn from these strategies but I think one unique aspect that that folks don't understand with CCP oppression is that there's a dedicated, a very devoted interest, right, in smashing um, people's right to collectively um, organize. And and I, I don't know, you know, obviously it's not like you know the unions are great in the U.S., right? It's like there's, but I think you know, very simple point I make is is like there's you can have service centers in in under China, you can't have something like DSA, you know. And this is not even to say like DSA is like some amazing paradigm. It's like you know, it's it's shitty and trash in all ways speaking as a DSA member and and like but like there's literally no capacity for you know like I'm I'm in LA I do local organizing and there's all these grassroots groups that I'm in the middle of like there's no chance that all these things even remotely exist right the minute one factory right of workers in China wants to build solidarity something like what you would even call movement on a local level right that's where it comes down and this is you know leftists like to say like oh but trying to save people from poverty and like, look, workers get all these benefits. But, but the point is, it's, it's, a, it's a heavy, it's a very paternalistic, right? Social democracy, right? That's very keen or especially keen actually because of its own heritage and, you know, Marxism or Maoism, like it knows exactly, right? The power um, um, of grassroots organizing, right? Of people mobilizing in a democratic independent way to form movement. It understands the, the power of that in, in a way that I think actually the U.S. government and, and all its failures and, and, and complete mess, especially under the Trump regime, right, actually doesn't quite, um, isn't able to quite grasp in the same way, right? So, so you have this phenomenon where I think people understand that you can't independently organize. And I, I don't know how, how much to stress the, the kind of um, detrimental reality of that, right? It's like, is the, the surveillance system um, the, and yeah, in, in many aspects, you know, life under China or Hong Kong and stuff. Um, yeah, okay, yeah, there's like, you know, these kind of general capitalistic growth and, you know, there's a lot of ways in which it parallels life here. And, and yeah, for a lot of people, it's, I guess, material conditions are better or, or something in China and Hong Kong, right? But the point is, right, is, is, I mean, that's how social democracies work, right? And how authoritarian social democracies specifically work is that they give you all these things, right? In exchange for um, demobilizing, depoliticizing, um, on the people. And I think they're able to effectively do that um, in a way, right? Dampening specifically independent politics in, in a way that I think folks in the US just can't, um, you know, again, there's COINTELPRO here is all this nasty bullshit, right? But, but at the same time, you know, this all encompassing way, right? In which um, um, civil society independent organizing is, is completely demobilized or neutralized, right? I think it's a scale that Western leftists are just, are just yeah, frankly, I mean, this, is, this seems like a, a very controversial point to make, but but just don't understand. And, and and there's no way to explain that without being accused of like, oh, what? So you think, you know, the U.S. government is better or something? And it's 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 like, no, I'm trying to say it's more nuanced than that, right? And they're bad in different ways. And and, and for the CCP, they're bad in a very specific um, way. That yes, that's authoritarian in a very specific way that that most folks here don't understand. And. And okay. I'm willing to listen to people on the ground. <laughs> well, um, it, it's not it's yeah. not controversial on this podcast. <laughs> a lot right, of, right. <laughs> right. A, lot, a lot of previous episodes have been also on that, depending even on the country. I, you know, touched on Venezuela, touched on, I will touch soon on Iran, a bunch of places in the Arab world. There are 
stories are pretty similar. I will briefly plug like episode 55 was uh, with uh, Zhong Jing Li and Ali Friedman, and it was on lessons from workers' resistance. Uh, they edited this excellent mm. book uh, called China on Strike, Narratives of Workers' Resistance. It's a bit dated now, but I think it's very, very useful as well for people to understand these you know, multiple stories that they don't know about or may, may have not heard about before. Right. Um, one thing that I try always to emphasize uh, when I speak about, well, obviously I speak about Lebanon and Syria a lot and Israel-Palestine, um, when I say that they're learning from one another, what I also mean is that in the same way as, and this you know, would be controversial, but I think people listening to this already know my positions on these things, but in the same way as the Israelis would call all Palestinian terrorists immediately or Islamists or whatever, Hezbollah mm-hmm. actually has its own terms for these things. Uh, Hezbollah would be called Islamist terrorists mm-hmm. by Israel, but Hezbollah also uh, describes any Syrian who opposes the Assad regime as takfiris, which is a term for unbelievers. Uh, well, one, it's a synonym or something. And what I'm trying to say is that even those that are at the receiving end of the war on terror, if it suits their purposes, they will also utilize it because at the end of the day, the goal is power. And in the same way as governments the world over right now are learning, you know, different surveillance technologies from one another, China obviously pioneering a lot of it and America helping it do so. As you mentioned, a lot of these tech companies, Blackwater and stuff like that, um, even militias do that, even parties do that, even uh, quasi-government entities, if you want, because the way to become a government from, you know, historically, among other things, is to monop- uh, have a monopoly on power. And among the many tools that you're disposed of to have a monopoly on power is to learn what, from, uh, from your enemy. So Hezbollah has also been learning from Israel. And this is something that's super, super controversial to say, as you might imagine. But it's just there. And the tactics are there. And their own videos are on YouTube. You can just look them up. It's, it's pretty straightforward if you don't have that ideological lens. Um, filtering all of these things out uh, because if you have that you know you, that ideological lens as i'm calling it well then it's always justified there's always a reason behind it there's always a purpose behind it we, we couldn't have just the answer isn't just the answer there must be something beneath it and then you will look for that answer even if mm-hmm. the party or the government or the state that you're defending or supporting even if they themselves haven't gone that far in supporting it, sometimes they become even more zealous than the party itself. And I see this a lot mm-hmm. with with tankies uh, on the internet, on you know, on Twitter especially, on Facebook as well, and stuff. They tend to literally place themselves like mentally in the shoes of Xi Jinping. Like they think that they they are, you know, uh, rationalizing as he might rationalize. And I saw this with Syria. I saw a lot, a lot of leftists, including on prominent. Um, you know, outlets, uh, Democracy Now! is one of them, among others. I'm not just uh, singling them out. I just thought of one interview they did, which I will mention another time, not now. But a lot of the time they say, well, why would Bashar al-Assad use chemical warfare? That would not benefit him. And they just think, as right. they think, they think that they are thinking like him. They think that they're putting themselves in his shoes as if they are themselves the leaders of an authoritarian government. And mm-hmm. they reach all sorts of conclusions that have nothing to do with reality. And I see the same thing being reproduced time. The more I expand, it's almost like I can sort of see the patterns. Like if I see a bit on, on mm. you know, on, I don't know, Thailand uh, or on whatever, I can s- start seeing some of these patterns and I can almost guess in advance. Like I did, I did kind of predict um, that 
what's been happening on Syria regarding disinformation, like as early as 2014, 15, would just be expanded and applied in different contexts. And, you know, lo and behold, we saw this happening, obviously, in Hong Kong, in Nicaragua, in Venezuela, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, just kind of um, complementing what you were saying, really. So, um, so this is a, I mean, none of these questions have been easy so far, but I think this one is possibly particularly difficult. I'm not sure. But I've been wondering if we can talk or like you can talk a bit about following the the, um, the repression in Xinjiang uh, of Uyghurs and, and other um, Muslim ethnic minorities. I, I had an interview uh, that's episode 43 with Rahen Asad um, and Yona Diamond. Uh, Rayhan, whose brother is one of the Uyghurs uh, forcibly disappeared by, by the CCP in Xinjiang. Uh, as I said, that's episode 43, the world's most technologically sophisticated genocide is happening in Xinjiang. That's the title. It's kind mm-hmm. of, you know, the, the title says it all. Um, so my question is, or let me preface it with like personal story in some ways, and then I'll, I'll ask it. I think that might make more sense. My specific positionality, you know, um, as Lebanese and Palestinian growing up in Lebanon, um, which is specific, you know, not in the diaspora, for example, um, means that I've had a specific attitude towards Syria and or towards Israel-Palestine that's not just about my opposition to the the Syrian government or the Israeli government. I mean, that's one thing in itself. But many people can be opposed to those two without having any kind of direct connection. Uh, I mean, which is good. Um, But what what gets added to that, uh, let's say, objective, or not objective, but depersonal uh, opposition to all kinds of authoritarianism is something more personal. It's like a personal wound that I see being replicated in multiple spaces because both Syria and Israel were military occupiers of Lebanon. Uh, Syria, for those who don't know, from 1976 to 2005 and Israel from 1982, although parts of it started earlier, until uh, 2000. And so when I you look or hear about or, you know, witness, let's say, the bombings in Gaza in 2014 or the bombings in Aleppo in 2016 or whatever, it's it gets added. And on top of just the horror of the thing in itself, what gets added is that, well, something similar happened in not too distant past in Lebanon, uh, although at different scales, I should say. And I'll br- briefly mention, so what I'm trying to get at is that essentially what ends up happening is that there are multiple Palestines, multiple Syrias, multiple Lebanons, multiple Israels, if I want to be a bit provocative, um, that just gets into my my way of thinking. And I'm able, better than I used to, it's still very difficult, to sort of navigate these multiple um, representations or what, what have you. I, I don't know how we want to call them. But like when someone, um, uh, let me think of a concrete example. Um, but when someone, like I lived in Scotland and England, and a lot of the time it almost became a cliche, unfortunately, <laughs> But a lot of the time when I would see a, a white person, usually a white man, wearing the kefiyeh, the Palestinian kefiyeh, I would almost have start having my doubts automatically. Like, is that person, does he have shit politics? <laughs> because it just became associated with a lot of people who almost in their, you know, I don't know, if I want to be generous in this interpretation, I can be less generous. Like being more passionate about us than we are, let's put it that way. Um, sort of actually take on this mantle of like they're trying to be more Palestinian than Palestinians to use to use that metaphor that a Palestinian friend actually used uh, in, in one of the episodes in the past. 
And I spoke about this with Aida Hozic, uh, who's from Bosnia, who, you know, from Sarajevo originally, uh, that's episode 69. And we ended up discussing multiple Bosnias, essentially, as she calls it, and multiple Syrias as a kind of my contribution to the, to the conversation. So to like with that in mind, if that makes sense, like my question to you is more, what were your first thoughts when you, if you remember them, when you first heard of the camps in, in, in Xinjiang, for example, if that makes sense? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, yeah, a lot of scattered thoughts, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, of course, of course, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a hatred for what's, what the government is doing there. And I think, um, yeah, I was going to say, I've, you know, I think I always have, I had like a long-term amateur interest in, in Islam and like Islamic history and, 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 and especially the connections of politics in Central Asia, Middle East and in South Asia, I've been always trying to kind of learn more about, right? And in a very influential classroom in college, was actually learning, first learning about kind of Islam through through the lens of Iran and Persia and like the lineages there and the relationship with how, um, you know, where these like ulamas at the time like imagined categories of political sovereignty and how does that work with mass movements or, or dampening. So I think, I think I've always been very interested in that. And also, yeah, the phenomenon of Islamophobia, right? Um, and then, and, and how, again like I, I gestured to this earlier right and and how that became kind of a huge um yeah what does it mean to show solidarity with that what does it mean to understand um you know that the specific experience right and, and i think um, um the, the, you know this diverse set of experiences associated with certain religious traditions and and yeah i think uh, i guess i'll first say i i have a i have a very specific kind of gripe or hatred right for for people who um you know ethnic minority or you know i guess eth- ethnic peoples who were formerly, you know, oppressed by imperialism, right, or, or impressed by others, and now are doing kind of similar things, right, onto other oppressed, like, I just have a specific gripe, but, like, that's why it, it was easy for me to hate Israel, China, like, or, I mean, just, like, the governments of Israel and, 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 and CCP and, and stuff like that, because I, I, yeah, I, I think that just especially rubs me the wrong way, and I think as someone who you know, identify as Hong Kong Chinese, right? I, I think I, I specifically don't just say Hong Konger because I, I do stress, yeah, I, I do find meaning and, and solidarity with the Chinese heritage, right? And I feel like a specific responsibility, right? Um, to to be able to confront the fact that, um, you know, that there's a state that's that's trying to monopolize, you know, what, what the Chinese identity should be um, and is doing its own sort of uh, 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 violence, right? Onto uh, another set of, uh, of different ethnic minorities, right? Um, you know, for one, doesn't include just just Uyghurs, right? Kazakhs, Tajiks, and, and a bunch of other ethnic uh, ethnic minorities. That um, that uh, yeah, friend um, Nerdok, um, who wrote this amazing piece for us, and and Daikon, that was also in Laosan, You know, also you know, always really stressed, right? You know, it's also of course it's it's majority Islam, but there are also Buddhists and other kind of um, religious minorities, but also ethnic minorities, right? Under under a specific and very deep kind of repression from the Chinese government. So yeah, definitely. That's I think that's that's the first. That's definitely one of the first thoughts, right? Is that um, yeah, like I think as a Hong Konger, we need to learn about the diversity of the context and change, not to simply just instrumentalize the struggle, so to speak, right? For for some sort of collective cause against the CCP, right? But to understand, I think in order to understand the complexity of the situation in Central Asia, but also the specter of, of Islamophobia, right, necessarily entails. Um, you know, thinking about the world system as a very complex phenomenon, right, in which a lot of these things intersect with each other. And, and I think actually speaks very importantly to, um, you know, something I was gesturing at um, before, right, like what does self-determination mean? 
what does self-determination mean in the context of, 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 of the Uyghur people, right? What does the self-determination context mean um, in the context of, of you know, uh, you know, secular folks, right, who are in these regions, but also in relationship to, to kind of, um, 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 you know, political activists who are Muslim and, and, and things like that, and how these kind of refract very, very differently, right? Um, you know, be it in Pakistan or, or, or Iran or Syria, Lebanon or, uh, or Xinjiang. And I think, yeah, I think there's, there's something about, I think there's something humbling, but also, yeah, despairing, right, about the level of surveillance, again, um, which I think the Western left fails to understand, right? And, and, um, and yeah, I think feeling, um, um, I, I, I don't know, feeling like I think it's similar with Hong Kong and just wanting to, you know, what it means to keep supporting um, in solidarity the voices there, right, and uplift the diversity of voices there. Um, while trying to find room for solidarity and resistance, right? And and in the current climate, um, in a sense, even more so in Xinjiang than Hong Kong, right? There, there's even less room for, for for any sort of rigorous kind of political organizing because of, of how heavily surveyed and, and the climate is, right? So I think, yeah, actually, I don't know. At the end of the day, not a lot of kind of smart thoughts, just, uh, yeah, I think feel, feeling a collective despair, but also um, feeling like, you know, we're not alone in the struggle, but also like, yeah, frankly, just to be very honest, like not totally sure how to move forward besides just like learning about the complexities of the situation and trying to, you know, not just, I think, not just learn enough to like, you know, bolster my own point of like combating the CCP, but learning enough to just know the, you know, and, you know, David Brophy's research, right. Um, um, Build down in in uh, 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 in 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 Vancouver, I think. You know, just have these amazing research on just the complexities of situations on the ground, and 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 yeah, that actually means there's no easy answers, right? It's not just combating the CCP. It's about what does it mean to talk about self determination for 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 a region that's so that's been so complicated and determined by different state powers in different ways, and and constantly sorting out, you know, what. What does it mean to be Uyghur? What does it mean to be Uyghur alongside Kazakhs? And what does it mean for all these people to be kind of um, elided with each other and, and this, this reality of oppression, but also trying to find um, um, collaboration to sort through contradictions, right, uh, among each other. And I think there's no easy answers. And, and frankly, yeah, I, it's one of those moments where I'm just like, yeah, I actually don't know what the political answer is, right? <laughs> or what self-determination can actually concretely look like. And I'm, I'm just learning. So yeah. no, I mean, humbling and despairing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's fair. Honestly, that makes sense. And the, the the whole I think it's a question of time. So when you when you mention that Western leftists don't usually understand the urgency of things sometimes or how, how the scale of the oppression can be um very different. Um I see this a lot, of course, with, with Syria. That's a very obvious thing where many people, even those who are not particularly fond of Bashar Assad, don't seem to quite grasp what we mean or what Syrians especially mean when they talk about him uh not him only but like the regime in general right. because the the speed of the oppression um is as important as the the nature of the oppression like if he was i mean to be very crude about this if he was dropping one barrel bomb every year that would not be the same thing as dropping a thousand barrel bombs in a month you know to be very very basic about this but that's that's the sort of situations um syrians have found themselves in and a lot of the discussions of should the revolution have been militarized or should it not? I mean, it's an important conversation. Syrians have been having it ever since it started. 
but one thing that's missing in these conversations and usually to kind of be a bit general about this in non-Syrian context is this understanding of well what else could they have done even those who are not happy with it even those that were and still are for good reasons are very concrete uh, critiques and even oppositions to a lot of how uh, the militarization started happening around 2012-2013 I don't see many Syrians uh, express these things online because from my impression and I've had some conversations that sort of confirmed these suspicions they're just afraid that this will then be co-opted like if they if right. they if they express regret let's say that the revolution was militarized well you know it takes five seconds on someone on twitter or someone on facebook to say you know haha you know well clearly that was a mistake and therefore obviously everything that has followed uh, is deserved and mm. another and this is kind of an awkward pivot but you mentioned the you know the importance of mentioning that you, you identify both as hong konger and, and chinese and um, there is a lot of literature now, I think, on on the very complicated identity of being both Jewish and Arab. And that's something, mm-hmm. you know, Ella Shahat obviously men- mentioned this a lot. The, the book is called On the Arab Jew, something uh, which I recommend. And I'll get into this more in, in future episodes. But one thing that many people, and in this case, even in the region, so even in Israel, even in Palestine, even in the Arab world, often don't seem to know, let's be very generous, is that a lot of these identities were forced out of people. So a lot of people would actually identify as Iraqi Jews, for example. And of course, it benefited Israel for that to stop. But what a lot of people, especially on the Arab side of things, don't seem to want to recognize is that Israel didn't just do it on its own. They didn't just, it wasn't just that they appealed to Iraqi Jews and Iraqi Jews overnight felt like, well, let's move to Israel now. There were there were concrete problems, largely promoted by uh, authoritarianism and uh, the authoritarian dimension of pan-Arabism. I should be more specific, that have forced a lot of people to either declare their loyalties, essentially, which effectively meant uh, sort of shutting up about being Jewish, or uh, you know, or leave basically. Like that was essentially the only two options left, or obviously suffer the consequences. And many people obviously opted to leave. Um, not that it was much of a choice. And we saw this story time and time again in pretty much all of the contexts that in Yemen, in Ethiopia, even not even necessarily Arab contexts. But those are stories that complicate the narrative of uh, just Israel-Arabs or Israel-Palestine. And at no point does it justify anything that the Israeli government has done. But many people would prefer to kind of ignore the fact that most Israeli Jews are actually from the region uh, in terms of, of ancestry. They're Mizrahis. They're from the East Coast. Mm-hmm. That's what Mizrah means. And that's com- this complicates the story. It doesn't make it better. It doesn't mean that the Israeli government is any better, obviously. But it just means that, well, we should also pay attention to that other thing. And a lot of people are, uncompli- are, are uncomfortable. And here I'm not talking even about Palestinians. Huh? I'm not talking about people in Palestine specifically. I'm not talking about those in refugee camps. They have enough problems on their plate, so I'm not blaming them for not being quote-unquote more nuanced or whatever. Like that's, It's a discussion of privilege in many ways. But it is something that I've been more and more thinking about more recently because, to put it very crudely as well, if the Iraq or Syria or Lebanon or Libya, Libya a bit less, but... Yemen, for example, Yemen is a big uh, example. If those were places that were safe for 
Yemeni Jews or Iraqi Jews or whatever. Israel wouldn't have a huge part of its population right now living in Israel. The project, quote-unquote, of Zionism, to broadly defined here, um, and here I will say I have an entire episode on 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 that with Daniel Randall, so I'll just which will come will already be out by the time our episode is out. Um, mm-hmm. A lot a lot of these uh, pressures, or, or let me put it differently, a lot of this politics of simplifying identities never benefits those that seem those that think it would benefit them. So Hong Konger nativists who want to, um, you know, have a, a very strict binary, you're either Hong Konger or Chinese and that's it. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't seem to understand, especially, yeah, don't seem to understand that this benefits Chinese nationalists. It doesn't benefit Han nationalists, I should say, like, you know, the Xi Jinping crowd or even people around him. Yeah, absolutely. It benefits him. And in the same way as, you know, Hindutva in India, for that matter, Indians who are Muslims, if, which most would identify as Indian Muslims, to be very clear, if there was a similar movement as we see with some of the Hong Kong nativists, it would just benefit Hindutva. The Hindutva wants, and many of, especially those more blatant about it, want to ethnically cleanse Muslims from India. And if there starts being a a movement that starts saying, well, we're not Indian anyway, well, that just benefits them. That's it. We've done the work for them. And always by having multiple identities at the same time, this is when we complicate their, we complicate right. their lives. <laughs> we complicate the lives of these authoritarian regimes. And I feel like this is something that's really, really, like very poorly understood. Um, to be to be kind of nice about it, and I admit it does frustrate me a lot. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm sure. I think the Middle East, yeah, it's it's definitely. I mean, the interesting thing about the Hong Kong context is that it's so new, right? This defining of the Hong Kong against the Chinese and, and a yeah, lot of yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of the the stuff you're gesturing to it's very salient with with the uh, with the Jewish identity right throughout these different regions right like there's such a deep and long complex heritage especially these different governments um, um, and yeah with Israel and stuff and and yeah I think I think it's there's a lot of food for thought there especially with with yeah with the group people and there's actually a lot of discussions about Israel and Jewish identity especially in, in Hong Kong circles now actually in the diaspora right because you know diaspora literally came from from that context. So there are people starting to think about this and, you know, not always in the most progressive ways, but, but yeah, so definitely, I think the, I think there are people thinking about, about the complexities of, 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 of Jewish kind of identities and stuff in the region. But yeah, I think absolutely. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not like, I don't, I don't fault people who are, again, I think this part of the self-determination thing and how I think people should be able to freely determine their identities. But, but for me, it's like, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty rigidly anti-nationalist in the sense that, or, well, especially as, that's no nationalist, but nationalist, right? In the sense that I, yeah, I think even third world liberate, like third world national liberation movements, like those have all been, you know, I mean, okay, yeah, there's social democratic gains, but they've ultimately been dead ends. And I think there are a lot of ways, even even someone who's not, I don't know, uh, an anarchist or whatever, right? Like Fanon would, would look at, right? Like the limitations of, of, of these identities. And for me, I definitely take that. I think the experience in Hong Kong has, has definitely taught me to, to never trust, yeah, just simple, you know, it's to believe that national liberation or thinking about things in a context of national liberation, especially ethno-national liberation, can somehow bring about any kind of uh, uh, long-term positive uh, change, right? And yeah, so I think my straddling between Hong Kong and Chinese and, and the Chinese part is also complicated because, you know, I think being in the United States, right, as an Asian American, right, like that is the main way I'm being coded, right? And I, I organize with, with, with Chinese American uh, immigrants, I, you know, I, I organize in Chinatown and, and I'm, I'm being read, you know, it's like, I, 
I, and then especially, especially under the sector of xenophobia, right, um, which is very real. I think I, yeah, I do feel solidarity and I feel, and for me, I think my, my straddling between the two is, is a way to, in a way to show solidarity both, but at the same time, a way to, to, to show my opposition to, to both. And, and, you know, one, you know, trying to say I'm Chinese to Hong Kongers to, to not, to, to show my kind of, you know, opposition fundamentally to, to, to localist way of thinking, right, nativist way of thinking, while also saying I'm a Hong Konger, because as an affront to the Chinese government's attempt to monopolize, right, the diversity of Chinese identity. And I think to me, it's about occupying, um, yeah, occupying this, 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 you know, sometimes hegemonic and sometimes, you know, um, not hegemonic term, right, and trying to articulate um, and, and own up to Chinese-ness or Hong Konger-ness or something, right, in my own in my own way, right, and ensure and diver- diversity of identity. Um, that's not just reducible to the stuff that you see in Chow Collective or the CCP propaganda, right, where it's, you know, nationalism and Chinese identity. It's like, no, there's, there's, there, there, there's a rigorous tradition of, of Chinese intellectuals being extremely self-deprecating, right, about, about, about the situation in China. And, and actually, you know, a lot of it's problematic and a lot of it's very intellectually interesting, right? And to me, that's, um, um, that's always about the independence of ideas and what people to think. And, and for me, it's about, occupying these kind of problematic and very loaded terms, right? And just trying to be myself and make my political interventions because that's that's what I think socialism is, at least for me, is right. As, as, as people, you know, we have the right to determine what we think, you know, uh, works for us and to advance, um, um, yeah, political concepts and ideas and work with others um, with our own kind of will and and um, um, encourage to redefine things and, and subvert things. So yeah, that, that's just a short response to, to kind of what you said. Uh, I actually can actually link it as well again to, to what you were saying now to, to Lebanon because <laughs> this is gonna sound very, very um, weird, but I'll just explain myself. The party in Lebanon that does internationalism best is Hezbollah. <laughs> and the reason why I say that is that they, you know, they at least uh, speak to Iranians, they speak to Iraqis and Syrians, and they speak to Palestinians and Yemenis obviously from a very narrow uh, perspective that benefits ultimately only the Iranian government. But my point is that the, most of the people who are anti-Hezbollah, obviously I'm among them, with the exception of those trying to propose a more progressive alternative, obviously me trying to do the same, uh, you know, the megaphone people that I mentioned before, the, the public source people I mentioned as well, they, they definitely do that, that kind of work, which is very important. Most other people who are just anti-Hezbollah mostly just appeal to a nationalist uh, rhetoric. They mostly just say, we want Iran out of Lebanon. And while I totally agree that I want the Iranian government out of Lebanon, the problem is that it's not enough of a salient narrative to just compensate for what Hezbollah, uh, for Hezbollah's narrative, let's say, or Hezbollah's discourse anyway. And that's, so that's another example of how many people who would call themselves anti-Hezbollah in Lebanon, or uh, anti-Iran, let's say, don't have the same kind of dynamism that uh, Hezbollah, which is anti-Saudi Arabia, that they do. Hezbollah is very happy to uh, inhabit all kinds of contradictions, all kinds of hypocrisies, because they're, you know, happy, I mean, <laughs> because they're comfortable in their position of power. They are part of, they are essentially the government right now. But all of those that want to propose alternative uh, narratives, for the most part, and this is, I'm actually going to link it to a question I had for you, um, for example, one weakness that I, I early, I, I mean, identified early on, and I mean, I'm not the only one, many people have, of the protest movement in Lebanon in October of 2019, 
is a lack of intersectionality, to be very uh, kind of broad about it. Uh, right. There were some within the movement, so, uh, especially feminists, they were the most vocal ones. Uh, that, you know, they, there was a, a video that went viral of like revolution in every country that ended up being the title of my conversation with JP on Lausanne. Um, mm -hmm. And they would kind of extend uh, their solidarity to migrant domestic workers that suffer under the uh, racist kafala system in Lebanon, and obviously refugees, Syrians and Palestinians, Iraqis and Sudanese and others. But they were really a minority. Most people simply appeal to a, you know, let's wave the Lebanese flag and we have to come together because the main thing that they were opposing, that we were opposing, I was there, is sectarianism. And what's one good way of opposing sectarianism? Well, nationalism, really, or patriotism, to be kind of lighter about it. You know, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter if you're Shia or Christian or Sunni or Druze, we're all Lebanese in the end. And while that's like a right. step forward-ish compared to the previous uh, or compared to sectarianism, let's say, or at least many would argue so, it doesn't get into class, it doesn't get into race, it doesn't get into regionalism, it doesn't get into uh, the issue with citizenship in the first place. Not everyone can be Lebanese in the first place. You, you cannot become a Lebanese, you can only inherit it. Uh, and that's right. a very patriarchal and sectarian thing. Those things weren't really developed in the same way. And I would say that in 2015, we had a big uprising, which I, I was part of as well. And while I would say it was more excusable back then, if that's really the term, or at least more understandable back then, because it was the first big movement of the post, post like quote unquote, post-war era since the 90s, I would say that in 2019, we should have learned a bit faster from the mistakes of 2015. And we did learn a lot of mistakes, don't get me wrong. A lot of mistakes were learned. Uh, Anti-sectarianism is a big one. Anti-classism, right. sort of, it, it started getting there, but not as much as, um, I mean, certainly I would have preferred. And definitely anti-regionalism, um, anti you might call it, like actual solidarity between people in the North and people in the South and that sort of thing. And that's very important, right. it's, it's crucial work, but it definitely didn't extend to a significant percentage of the population that live in Lebanon, they just don't have the citizenship, Syrians, Palestinians, Ethiopians, and so on. And for me, that's not, that's not just a detail in the story. It's not just, uh, we should be nice because it's good to be nice, but if, because that implies that if we're not nice, it doesn't matter. That's what it implies, right. you know? My point is right. that um, a huge part of Lebanon, essentially, is simply not being talked about, is simply not being ignored, uh, is simply being ignored. And that weakens the movement itself. Like, that's my actual argument, is that it, it's not that we should just extend a hand to Ethiopian uh, migrants because that's a good thing to do. I mean, obviously it is, but it's because they are a specific form, a specific part. I meant to say, like, they form a specific part of Lebanese society, of society of Lebanon, I should say, um, that is simply being ignored. And we can't really build a concrete and strong resistance movement, essentially, and an actual opposition that intends to remove the government in power, because that's what Ashab Yuri, the Scot and Nizam, the people who want the downfall of the regime, that's what it means. But how do we force that regime to, 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 to fall down without understanding right. the multiple tools at its disposal? And racism is among the tools at its disposal. Sectarianism, regionalism, classism, misogyny, obviously, homophobia for that matter, and transphobia as well. Mm. So yeah, a bit of a ramble on my part, but the, the link that I wanted to make is that you have yourself tried to uh, bring closer, I guess I would say, 
the Hong Kong protests with the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, in, in the US. And <laughs> right, right. Um, I mean, that's difficult to do in itself. So I appreciate the effort. And I would, I would, so I'm just asking you to sort of talk a bit about that. And I would be interested if you can sort of uh, discuss sort of the, the reactions you, 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 you may have encountered uh, trying to do that, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, um, yeah, I mean, I just want to say, yeah, definitely the, the, I think we actually both wrote uh, similar pieces around the same year about migrant domestic workers, actually. I remember reading your piece on, on that. Yeah, I did an open democracy piece on that too. And, and so, yeah, definitely, I think, um, and, you know, I think Hong Kong in a much less rigorous, just less, actually slightly less complicated sense. Um, um, yeah, I think was learning the mistakes of sectarianism, like, and like, I think sectarianism in a, in a much less, like, I mean that in a much less deeper way from like the literal kind of all these, yeah. like the, the, these, these, these codified divisions in, in Lebanese society. But, but yeah, I think it was a lot of splitting, a lot of people kind of shitting on each other. And, and, and yeah, the, this whole, like, no platform, we're all Hong Kongers thing was also kind of reaction to that, right? So it's almost like this sense of unity that has since elided problematically ended up um, um, narrowing the space for, for political diversity, in, in my opinion, right? And, and, um, and, and calling out the problematic forces, right? Was, was supposed to be a corrective to the errors of umbrella movement in the wake of that. So I think that that connection is very salient. And again, it goes back to the point of, I think the real question that, that, that we should all be asking is, yeah, what the self-determination look like, right? What does self-determination look like in the face of respecting people, people's right to self-organize, right? Freedom, for, freedom to, to secede from, from, from each other's uh, uh, programs, but also be able to join together in coalitions. Like what, what does that look like? What does that mean? Um, and how do we do that productively and democratically like moving forward, right? I think that's a, that's a, it's a really deep question. And yeah, so I mean, the, my, 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 I think the migrant domestic workers thing relate to my, the BLM stuff. Cause I think, you know, I think people in Hong Kong like to, you know, it's like, oh, you know, you leftists are always talking about like everything under the sun. And, you know, we have this one struggle to focus on and blah, 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 right? that's usually the, the, the whole thing. And we're, we're bringing up too much random, you know, things that are obviously important. Like no one's saying they're not important, but like, why bring it up now? And my answer is always like, yeah, I think these are, these are, interventions that precisely are meant to point to the the very limits of I mean what yeah what I was trying to make the argument I was trying to make in the market domestic workers piece right is the fact that that population points to a very central divide class divide in Hong Kong society right that that that's not just like something that people should think about it's like this is the core limitation for me and what's limiting our horizon for political freedom right so I think I think the, the importance to talk about migrant domestic workers is the fact that yeah a lot of people were able to go to protest because there's a lot of yeah there's some like middle class there's a lot of middle class protesters and there's like you know they're able to do so because of this care work right that's extremely elided right and that forms a, a, as a huge core of hong kong's economic system and so yeah i think that it's it's about yeah like, listening to migrant domestic workers but it's also thinking about like what is the stakes of us ignoring them right and how how is like the fact that we have ignored these voices, how they actually point to a concrete central limitation of how we imagine this whole thing that we're working on. And that's and precisely the same move that I tried to do with the Hong Kong with Stan with the Black Lives Matter piece that I co-wrote with, with JS, another Lao Sound member, right? It's to say that, yeah, okay, obviously, if you just look at the title, it's like, you know, it's just like, it's another one of those pieces. It's like, oh yeah, we should stand with each other, right? But like well, the point of the intervention is saying like, anti-Blackness is a global phenomenon. And like what I just said earlier, right? It's 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 been a very important source for governments to develop their programs of surveillance and racism and, and divisions. And the fact that Hong Kongers can't 
really don't really know how to talk about anti-blackness or the fact that like people don't really know what to do with the Black Lives Matter movement, right? I think points to the fact that the fact that we haven't seriously thought, I think, because I think thinking about blackness, right? Thinking about black folk society, you can't think about, you can't not think about global um, systematic injustices and how they all connect to each other, right? And I think that's precisely, it, it, again, it precisely shows something that's very uh, central and limiting in Hong Kong struggle, right? Um, by looking at you know, seemingly something that's in the margins or not related, I think the point, the move here is, is trying to point to the fact that us refusing or us, like we not having coherent answer or solidarity, program solidarity with, with such a movement, at least in that point in, 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 in um, last year, I think it actually reveals a symptom, right, of, of, a, of a particular set of weaknesses, right, and how we imagine our struggle, why it's been so limited, why we don't kick out right wingers from our ranks, why we don't have the language and discourse, right, to articulate, you know, not, not just some like principled sense of freedom, right, but, but a pragmatic sense of freedom. Because for me, it's about, you know, you need to make these economic critiques, you need to make these cross-border solidarities in order for your own fight to be actually successful in the fight of such a large gargantuan kind of authoritarian power. Like we need, um, I think that's the thing I'm trying to always cite, right, is the fact that um, I'm talking about all these things, Black Lives Matter, migrant domestic workers, not because, you know, I'm just an idealist, right? It's like, no, we need allies, right? And I, my, and I have the right to be like the political allies that a lot of the people in Hong Kong have been seeking are trash, like Marco Rubio and Josh Hawley. And, and, and I think they're always like, oh no, but you're troubling like our, our avenues for freedom. Like, no, these are the precisely the wrong allies that are limiting um, our, our, our freedom. And I'm trying to talk to a register where I'm like, no, I'm trying to propose pragmatic allies, right? Who would actually help uh, our cause and also for us to help their cause because not only because it's right, I mean, it is right, but it's it's hard to speak to Hong Kongers just in the register of principles and idealism because Law folks just don't care or something, or they think you're, you know, being, yeah, idealist, right? But you're like, no, this is literally these are pragmatic allies. These are real effective coalitions that can allow us to, to, to effectively fight state violence, not just for us, but for anywhere. Like it's and, and yeah. So I think the reception has been, you know, wild, obviously, and and it's I predicted it. You know, I, I, this is pretty funny. I think anonymous kind of reshared, <laughs> like the hacker collective, and so that you know millions of followers, and and so just went like softly viral for a bit and yeah it was my phone was blowing up um with notifications for like days just you know you know right wingers just shitting on it left like everyone was shitting on it obviously got a lot of support but it was also like you know it's like how dare you equate your fascist movement to the black women's struggle or it's like you know how dare you you know equate like black people like they're like not they're like lesser than our struggle so from like the right wing nativist crowd and it's just like all this stuff and and it was it was definitely my lesson is it helped me just be like you know obviously I take in opinions and, and I, I I rework my perspectives but but just be like you know confident in my own political interventions right and that it, I'm not I'm never gonna I think that was really the moment where I was like oh yeah definitely if there was any any doubt about it like that was a moment when I'm like yeah definitely not gonna please everyone and that's not really the point anyway so, and and but yeah so it, it was it was a lot it was a lot kind of responding but that piece led to kind of um we did a webinar connecting activists from from black liberation movement here in hong kong and that was yeah i thought it was very successful it was like hundreds of people attending and and yeah i think it you know um again it's it's just a long struggle and this is a small step but that's uh i felt like you know we, we were able to make certain interventions and um glad about that in face of the, the, the very chaotic reception so yeah
Uh, I just remember that uh, right around the time Black Lives Matter happened again, uh, you know, the the couple of weeks after George Floyd's murder, you know, there was a, a not just an American outcry, obviously, but also kind of this very interesting international phenomenon. There was a lot of discussions of like, what would Black Lives Matter look in different contexts? We saw in France, mm. very interesting stuff happening in the UK, obviously, as well, in Canada as well, Australia and so, and so on, New Zealand. But we saw one in Lebanon, and the one in Lebanon was actually extremely cringy. It was very, very problematic because they didn't think, of, I mean, the people specifically that I'm mentioning, I and others tried to actually make the, the argument of like, the, if Black Lives Matter in Lebanon, the kafala system wouldn't exist. Here, I'll just mention mm. kafala means sponsorship. For those who don't know, it's just the, it's the, essentially is the, the method of governance of migrant bodies, if I put it that way, by, by the Lebanese government, essentially that their legal status is tied to the kafil, the Lebanese sponsor. And I have a number of episodes on kafala, including with migrant domestic workers. So like, people can just type in kafala if they want. It's K-A-F-A-L-A, whatever podcast you're listening to. Um, but those in, in, in Beirut, I remember, just went like Lebanese lives matter. And they didn't include, uh, well, everyone else. <laughs> they didn't include uh, actual black lives in Lebanon, Ethiopians uh, most notably. Uh, some Sudanese as well and so on, or even like racialized people like Sri Lankans and Filipinas and, and so on. Uh, obviously, they didn't include uh, other Arab, Arabs like refugees, like uh, Syrians and Palestinians. It was a uh, shallow, um, simply attempt to co-opt. Uh, maybe they meant well, maybe not. I it doesn't really matter. But it, yeah, it was it was one of those things where like well, that's that wasn't it really. You didn't. That wasn't the point. Uh, if if we were wanted to have a a, a like BLM in Lebanon, which I still think would be useful. It's a useful uh, rhetoric, or it's a useful framework, I should say. It's not exactly the same. There's no equivalent of like the Atlantic slave trade or anything like that. It's not the exact same thing. There's there's a very particularity, obviously, to Black Lives Matter in the context of America, obviously. Um, but there are echoes, there are interesting parallels that I, I would say in the same way as anti-Blackness uh, drives a lot of, of international um, authority in politics. Uh, in Lebanon, there is a version of that. It's very quintessentially Lebanese, I should say, but it, it does exist and something to to look at. I'll, I'll maybe do some episode on this at some point. Um, so last thing before we kind of get into the book section is mm-hmm. we rented about lefties and, you know, tankies, especially and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, we can go on right. and on and there's been other episodes, so maybe I won't torture you with this too much. Um, <laughs> One thing that's my would... whole life, too. Yeah, <laughs> I know, I know, it's I know. My whole life, Nazi, somehow. Yeah, I know. Um, so I mean, one thing that I do think is uh, relevant to point out um, the initial piece that I read that you know led me to invite you is this piece that you wrote for Lausanne called "Fighting Anti-Asian Violence Cannot Include Apologism for the Chinese State." End quote. I mean, the title is you know it's self-explanatory, but. Um, can you sort of talk about this, also contextualize it for those who, who may not know, you know, the, the, the violence that it, it you were reflecting about? And I will also mention that um, I had an interview with Kate Zen from, from Red Canary mm-hmm. Song, uh, that's episode 39, which unfortunately a lot of the things, and that was last year, and unfortunately a lot of things that she had to say in that episode were uh, manifested in, in the, the most horrible way in, in, in America, um, what, about a month month or so ago. So yeah, if you can just contextualize it and contextualize that article, talk a bit about it as well. And obviously everything we're talking, I will, I will link them in the, in the description. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Kate's resources and takes are, are very good on on the background of the the right wing stuff, especially in the Asian American communities. But but yes, you know, anti Asian violence has been spiking since the COVID stuff and Trump and everything. And and yeah, I think with especially with Atlanta mur murders, right, of the massage workers last uh, was it two months ago now? Or no, sorry, still last month. And uh, well, I, I guess months ago now when this comes out, but. But yeah, it's really kind of stirred a, a lot of activism and I think a spotlight in Asian American communities that has never been seen before in, in that level. And, you know, I'm, I'm, again, wearing different hats as, as you know, sometimes help out with these organizations and and just as a trans organizer and as someone doing the Laosan work. And I think there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on, right? And there's a lot of, it reveals also a lot of contradictions, right, in the Asian American community. And, and you know, I've, I've been never one for advocating, you know, I'm always kind of like class lines over, over ethnic ethnic lines in terms of organizing as much as possible but but yeah so you know for example the issue of sex work right um the issue of policing and now yeah the the, the issue of of um what does feel about the chinese communist party right i think these all became flashpoints and divisions within the community that i think people aren't aren't ready to talk about or or, or just are kind of alighted right and and i was specifically responding to you know so there's answer coalition right I, i'm that i feel like you're your listeners might be familiar with already, right? Um, you know, part of the tanky anti-war infrastructure in the in the U.S., right? And uh, only showing up when the U.S. bombs someone, and silent when Russia bombs, you know, Syria. But but you know, that's the thing. But they did the whole you know programming on like stop Asia, stop Asian hate, and yeah, and stop China bashing. So it's like very like disingenuously kind of you know putting those things together, right? And, and I think there's there's even kind of this a lot of um, discourse in the U.S. where it's like, yeah, we can't demonize China because that feeds into anti-Asian hate. And there's not really like a alternative to that in discourse and organizing that can, that can, you know, both obviously, yeah, like combat xenophobia, right? But at the same time, we're not going to throw the, the mass movements and dissidents under the CCP under the bus, right? I think there's, there's a lack of that, right? And I think Answer Coalition has really been able to, to kind of capture that and then did a national um, day of action across different cities. And, and so that, that was what I cited in the intro, right? That was a responding to, right? That actually, you know, we, if we're going to talk about anti-Asian violence, right? And anti-Asian racism, right? The CCP, we can't have a, a movement against that, right? That um, without taking into account the crimes of the CCP, right? And, you know, yeah, obviously the right-wingers and the centrists are, are trying to capture this, right? Um, um, this program, to uh, to advance their kind of anti-China, they're you know building up the military-industrial complex in the U.S. But you know I think this is the, the analogy. I, I I don't think it's even an analogy at this point, right? But the thing about like the Me Too movement, right, and and how sexual assault, you know, people are like abusers are dealt with in movement spaces, right, and and how it, it's a similar rhetoric. It's like we you know it's like in, in less spaces, like we shouldn't call out abusers or something because oh no, that will just you know amplify the voices of the right wing or something, right? And I feel like this is the geopolitical version of that, right, and. And, and again, it's not an analogy because they're literally doing this for, you know, Uyghur women in, in, in Xinjiang, um, you know, with all, with all these issues and trying to be like, oh, no, they're just CIA funded or whatever. Right. So it's always like it's not an analogy. It's like the same shit, but just on a on a different scale. And yeah, so my argument is trying to make like, you know, we need all, all alternatives. Right. We need to critique anti-Asian. We need to mobilize against anti-Asian racism. And, and I, I kind of put a bit of my my own personal, you know, I usually try not to go into that. But, you know, just like I'm just like as a. Chinatown organizer, it's just like, yeah, we've been like, you know, like I've been having this, these difficult conversations in my community for months, right? And and I think uh, just one moment that really got to me was, I mean, this is kind of small and marginal, but I think some some people were trying to say like, 
I think some, it started off as a joke on Twitter. Someone was like, oh, the shooter in Atlanta also read Lao San and Chuang. That's how he's, he got his anti-China. Yeah, it was pretty wild. But And then that beca- and then that went a little bit. Like, people thought that was real and became like a little bit. I think that just really, I just remember one day I was just like, I was just like, yeah, I was just like coming back from just a bunch of organizing meetings on a Saturday. And I was just like saw, seeing that. And it was just like, like, I don't, it's like, first of all, it's like, you don't know us. <laughs> And like, you don't know this type of stuff that, that we deal with or the stuff that we've been working on, right? In terms of as people, you know, who are critical of the CCP, right? But also organizing um, against xenophobia very immediately in our in our immediate communities, right? And for me in Chinatown. And so it's like, who are you to say that? But, you know, that's another thing aside. But the second thing is kind of just like, um, actually, how can we carve out an alternative program, right? Um, where we can hold all these things accountable to highlight the efforts of people, of voices, who aren't softly pro-CCP, right? Who are anti-CCP, but also doing organizing work on the ground. And how can we think of all these efforts as congealing together, right? We're gonna talk about anti-Asian violence in a, in a much more expansive level that can include, include Uyghurs, right? That can include Asian voices like myself that, you know, like, you know, like just like we face repression to like, am I, does, do I not count as anti-Asian violence just because, you know, like a, a, as a recipient of that because of Chinese oppression, just because it's not the US doing it, you know? And it's like, how, how can we have a discourse that can that can accommodate all these different perspectives, right? Was something I was trying to point to. And then I think one thing actually that was a larger stakes of the piece, right? Was not was actually pointing the fact that there are a lot of contradictions in the Asian American community. And some of these contradictions, we need to draw our lines. Like we're not gonna be, I, I would rather be in the same room and building a movement with a bunch of white socialists than, than Andrew Yang than a bunch of these other Asian American liberal, uh, liberals, right? And, and I think, and this is the same logic. It's like pro-CCPers are not our friends, just like Asian American liberals who are gentrifying our communities are not our friends. And I think me highlighting this topic of delinking the CCP thing and anti-Asian racism thing points to this larger phenomenon that I'm trying to index in the Asian American community, right? Where it's actually, this is not the moment, well, you know, being polemical here, this is not the moment for unity like, uh, among Asian Americans, right? This is precisely the moment for for disunity, for drawing lines of demarcation, right? Against those who have been totally complicit. And, you know, this is right here, like 20 minutes away from me, right? With Asian American capitalist developers actively courting white people, white developers to gentrify and displace Asian American working class, uh, Asian Americans. And it's the same stuff with the CCP, right? It's, it's, it's not just looking at, you know, our ethnicity and trying to say like, this is the way to save uh, Asian American communities and uplift Asian American voices, right? It's actually, no, it's, it's, it's better through coalition building. It's better through sorting through no, nuances. And actually, yeah, I'm, I'm standing against people who look like us actually, um, who would, would actually might actually bring, bring about a, a more expansive and more genuine transformation for uh, Asian American communities against racism and um, xenophobia and, 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 and other types of things. And then I end with, yeah, just like, um, you're pointing out people who have been doing the work and 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 you know i think i you know to be to challenge jake werner's stuff on progressive internationalism i was like you know i think that's that's been a very interesting starting point for us to think about you know what it means to have progressive agendas that can connect both us and china systems of oppression right on a note of climate change global labor rights global migrant justice and stuff how can we organize around these types of frameworks instead right um uh, as a way to kind of wrap up the intervention um so that yeah i think that's a a short summary yeah no that was good thanks it sort of made me think of uh one thing that this what you just mm. said reminded me of is it's just the um, there were lots of accusations of like russophobia happening around the time of of the the hacking of the elections in the us or uh, that attempts of the other ones and 
It was shortly after the annexation of Crimea as well in Ukraine. And so a lot of the online disinformation uh, from the part of the Kremlin was sort of linked to, uh, or got like, they sort of boosted one another with a lot of tankies, a lot of, uh, I would just call them like uh, opportunists, really uh, some like obsessive contrarians like like Glenn Greenwald and others. Um, to basically say like any any kind of criticism of of the the Russian government, even when legitimate, especially when legitimate, is basically Russophobia. And the thing is that Russophobia exists. There there is an actual problem of 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 the very black and white binary of anything Russia related that we see or Russian people related specifically that we see, especially in in American uh, you know popular culture. It's just become. It's one of the most widespread accepted forms of of prejudice and bigotry that I know of, to be honest. Uh, kind of like when I think of like anti-Gypsy hatred or anti-Roma hatred, I should say, in, in Europe, it's just completely normalized. Like it, it doesn't even take um, that much thinking from most people, even who would call themselves progressives or liberals or whatever. It's, it's just one of those things that is a problem. But my point is that this wasn't what was happening. This just wasn't what was happening. And there, there is a way of then you want to be the person who you don't want to deny the existence of hatred. You don't want to deny the existence of russophobia. But the way it was being manipulated is actually harms the, the struggle against genuine russophobia, if you see what I mean. And it's, not a, yeah. it's not a good parallel because there, there has been a concrete rise in anti-Asian hatred and violence, as, as, as you've mentioned, of course, in the United States. It's not the same kind of uh, situation, but in the ideosphere, you know, in the, in the way, in the in the space, online space, especially where these narratives are sort of battling themselves out, I definitely saw echoes of that. So I just I just wanted to kind of bring that up. Well, I mean, on that note, promise, this has really been a, a long and very productive conversation. I really thank you. If we can sort of uh, end it on a on a bookish note, as I, as I tend to enjoy doing, and if you can recommend three books uh, for our listeners and explain why. Yeah, totally. Yeah, thanks for having me. And, and yeah, it's been really productive conversation and yeah I think always trying to learn more about the situation in the Middle East and and yeah the connections between these international uh, movements from below um yeah um yeah three books okay so my first one is this one it's a little obscure but I think you can still find it online it's called shit what's it called yeah like China but China the revolution is dead long live the revolution it's a very obscure uh uh collection edited by this kind of anarchist group in, in the 70s in Hong Kong and yeah, it has just a bunch of kind of anarchist, libertarian, communist, socialist takes on on, on the Chinese system. And um, so you get like Raya Dunevskaya from the Johnson Force Tendency, who, who had a piece. And then, and then, yeah, a lot of like really obscure and underrated pieces um, um, coming from, from, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I just have a dedicated interest in, in dismantling the hegemony of Maoism, I think, in, in Chinese left circles, but also like, you know, analysis of China. So this is really cool. And uh, I think it's still available online through Black Rose Books or something. So yeah, there's one. And um, yeah, I mean, I'll just, I'll just point out one essay that's particularly fascinating is, is called The Dusk of Rationality by Yu uh, Su and Kanto, like Yu Shui. And yeah, it's just like this libertarian comment. She's like a former Red Guards who fled the Cultural Revolution of Hong Kong and wrote this critique of, 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 of Maoism and stuff. And it's very fascinating. Um, my second book is also, now I just realized they're all coming for similar traditions, but this is this is um, Martin Glaberman, um, Punching Out and Other Writings. So this is like a pamphlet or a short uh, collected productions by, by this guy who worked very closely with, he's like this white auto 
worker leftist who worked closely with CLR James from that tradition as well. I guess he's, I don't know what you would call him now, libertarian socialist. I don't, I don't know, but he, they had like a bit of falling out with like Grace Lee Boggs and that camp at a certain point. And then they went in their own direction as like the correspondence publishing committee or something, all based in Detroit, right? So they're all very uh, 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 centered in like the, the kind of automobile um, uh, workers organizing milieu and you know, connections with the League of Revolutionary Black Workers in Detroit. There's just like this amazing pamphlet on, on the nuts and bolts of what it means to organize in your workplace. Why, um, you know, I, I'm not as uh, critical of, of unions, I think, as, as, or I mean, yeah, as, as, as he is, but he gives a very nuanced um, um, depiction of, of, yeah, why unions, bureaucratic unions are bad and the need for workers to invent um, new forms of organization, right, grounded on their own perspectives. And yeah, it's very nitty gritty, you know, it talks about like the workplace day by day and, 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 and the Ford, like motor company factories, but there's also like larger stuff on, on him critiquing um, Hell Draper, which I do, it was one of the first people I read actually on the left, you know, on, on like the student movement and relationship to workers movements in the United States. So, so yeah, it can be nitty gritty, but also talks a lot about just like what it means to organize and why organize and what, what mass movement or new forms of organization should be like. So yeah, Martin Glaberman punching out in other writings. And then my last one is this more recent one that came out called Beyond Survival by uh, Idris Dixon and Leia Lakshmi Piepsna Samrashina. Um, this is on, I think, AK or, oh my God, AK or PM Press, one of those. And, and yeah, it's actually about transformative justice. And, and I think, honestly, there's been, you know, I think there's a lot of talk about, you know, this is just like ideas and, and shit and what, like organizing or, or ideas and stuff. But there's actually not a lot enough in discourse about how to sort out differences within internal communities, organizing spaces, right? And what it means for us to work with each other and work through differences, but also work through harm and stuff, right? In a way, and I feel like, um, yeah, this collection is a really real one. And there's some folks interviewed or, or written that I uh, kind of personally know who are just amazing organizers. And and yeah, thinking about kind of a, a, a decolonial liberatory look at transformative justice and why that's critical to, to, to political organizing and us thinking about politics, because this is literally, you know, it's not just about ideas or, or which tendency we come out of or, or analysis of the state, right? It's, it's like, it's, it's kind of like directly connected to, okay, so how do we start um, organizing uh, for a positive model of, of community building, right? That can work through differences without the police, without without the state and without all these things, right? And I feel like it's, we, we, we talk more about abolishing a state than, than thinking about alternatives kind of right here and now, right? And then these problems, you know, obviously I don't, you know, I'm not, I don't profess, uh, expertise in this, right? I'm definitely still learning and, and, and also trapped in the middle of a bunch of internal conflicts all the time in organizations, right? But but yeah, I think if we can't sort out how to navigate through different abuse and harm in our own spaces, then it's hard for us to, to keep imagining a, a, a truly inclusive world forward that can look beyond, right, the, the failures and the mistakes of, of, of actually existing social states, right? Cuba or so. So we need another things, right? How can we actually imagine a, a true libertarian future for, for all marginalized and working people? And I think it starts here, yeah, with how you how you can organize in your own space with, uh, especially when problems come out. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, Beyond Survival, those three books. And I can see awesome. links yeah. there, yeah. The, the last one is by AK Press. I just looked it up while you were talking. Um, okay, I mean, on that note, uh, promise Lee, thanks a lot for your time. Thank you. Thank you.
Fire These Times is made possible by supporters on Patreon. If you'd like to support through a monthly donation, you can head out to patreon.com slash fire these times. If you want to explore other options, you can do so by checking out the website.